The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. April 1805, Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. April 1805, Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. April 1805, Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. April 1805. Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. This is Podcaster and Commander an audio documentary podcast series about the seafaring classic Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. The series will be an oral history of the film's conception and production, a discussion of the film's critical reception, and the increasing resonance in the now 20 years since its release. It occurs to me now that it's time to talk about why Peter Weir's Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, was a necessary movie to unpack in our customary obsessive format. In the first four episodes of the podcast, I've been approaching the work of Peter Weir almost in the same fashion as the man himself, not trying to over-explain, not reaching for answers. 
instead grasping Weir's inimitable, effortless, dense and painterly style. I've attempted to heap dense coat after coat of insights and impressions and the boundless wisdom of our incredible crew of generous guests onto this utterly transfixing film. The more I've reached, though, the more I've come to find myself wanting. In many ways, I was like Lucky Jack, absorbing the incredible survival instincts of Dr. Maturin and Lord Blakeney's stick insect. I was staring at the nature of Weir's work and trying for the show to camouflage itself, to imitate and flatter this incredible work. This isn't just a work of any filmmaker, but rather the work of, in my opinion, Australia's greatest living filmmaker. So let's briefly pause our discussions on the prize, the HMS surprise, and in this episode focus our attention squarely on Weir's body of work and everything that makes Weir's films resonate for our guests. And so who are those guests? Freelance writer with bylines at Paste, Vulture, and RogerEbert.com, Isaac Feldberg. You can still tell a human story. You can still make a film with an exceptional amount of craft and integrity uh, and economy. And, and you can do it on this massive scale. Comedian, filmmaker, podcaster, friend. Alexi Toliopoulos. This is Alexi Toliopoulos on The Great Pit of Weir for my dear friend Blake Howard. Co-writer and master and commander of the far side of the world, John Colley. You've just got to let the dream speak to you and, uh, and, uh, and not try and deconstruct it because otherwise you might destroy the magic. Film critic, video essayist, filmmaker and author, Scout Tafoya. Peter Weir directs in calligraphy. Filmmaker, producer, and one half of the incredible team behind the Tony and Ridley Scott The End of History video essay series, Tucker Johnson. Master and Commander came out shortly after that. We saw it in the theater just like Scott did, which was like a mind-blowing experience. Writer and director of Night Owls and co-host of the official Mission Impossible podcast, Light the Fuse, Charles Hood. I mean, now, as I mean, Truman Show and, and Master and Commander are two of my absolute favorite movies Screenwriter and producer of Destroyer, The Invitation, The Mysterious Benedict Society, Crazy Beautiful, Phil Hay. One of if not my favorite maker of all time. Former film critic at the LA Weekly and Village Voice, turned filmmaker and screenwriter of Black Christmas and the former host of the Switchblade Sisters podcast, April Wolf. They're just easy, easily identifiable as weird, right? Um, because he hasn't been diluted by Hollywood. And finally, senior editor and critic at Rolling Stone, and the former editor of Time Out New York, David Fear. Really just going because I was like, it's Peter Weir. I'll see anything that Peter Weir does. I had been a long time Peter Weir fan since, you know, seeing Gallipoli as a young formative lad uh, with my parents, uh, also in a theater, because I'm that old. Your narrator for the series is me, Ken Jacob. Theme doctor, Andrew Villa, and I am your captain, Blake Howard. Episode five. Last waves of Peter Weir. In the last episode, my guests and I charted the reception of Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World. In case you missed it, here's Isaac Felberg to take us back to 2003. As I remember it, Master and Commander was a potential awards contender as well as a commercial play. Fox in putting all of the money behind 
Master and Commander that it did, a $150 million budgeted film, uh, they really wanted more return than they ended up getting from, from the film. It came out in November of 2003. It was in this prime spot to rain during the Oscar seasons and also take advantage of the Thanksgiving holiday frame. And it, it didn't quite connect in the way that you might have thought a film of this scale and dramatic import would connect. It didn't even hit number one in its opening weekend. It came in behind Elf, the Will Ferrell Elf uh, Christmas comedy. And that certainly was not what Fox had been counting on. I think if you were looking to kind of assign blame for that, uh, you might just consider the timing of Master and Commander, it being a much more solemn uh, and grave, dramatic portrait of life on the high seas and of nautical combat. Uh, as, as a spin on the historical epic, it was much more straightforward. It was in the vein of something like Gladiator, uh, also with Russell Crowe, uh, at a time when those historical epics were really seeding ground at the box office to more fantastical, uh, large-scale epic films. I'm thinking here of the Lord of the Rings films. I mean, that year, uh, Master and Commander had been gunning for a lot of Oscars, and a lot of the uh, ones that it was up for, the technical categories especially, ended up going to Lord of the Rings. Uh, the Return of the King, uh, which ultimately won Best Picture as well. Uh, it still did very well with the Oscar body. I think it got 10 nominations in total, including Best Picture, but it just could not compete with what a cultural phenomenon the Peter Jackson-directed Lord of the Rings films really were. Uh, and there, there's a certain escapism to Lord of the Rings and a certain... Um, uh, light-hearted quality that ma that Master and Commander didn't attempt. Uh, it, by this time, you've also got Pirates of the Caribbean starting up as well with Curse of the Black Pearl in 2003, and that's like, you know, it's fantasy, it's swashbuckler, it's supernatural, and it just has all of these other selling points that Master and Commander, uh, in a strange way, had too much uh, historical dignity to go into. I think that that's one of the reasons that Master and Commander is beloved today, is that it just has this um, respectability to it in a way. The fight scenes are very realistic, very gruesome, and very sudden as well. They aren't the bulk of the running time of this epic film, and so they uh, have a certain grounding in reality that a lot of blockbuster films were moving away from by 2003. I think there's a very time-honored tradition of historical epics that Master and Commander fits into. Uh, 2003, even you know more recently than Gladiator, had The Last Samurai and it had uh, multiple Greek or Roman epics. You had Troy uh, around that point as well, but it just wasn't the tide that Hollywood was rising at the time. I think that having $150 million being devoted to your film, at that point in time, the thinking for Hollywood executives was reality doesn't 
command that kind of a budget. You need something that is more visual effects heavy. Um, in the, or in the case of Pirates of the Caribbean, you need something that is a historical epic that is augmented by these other um, audience-friendly elements, like the you know the ghosts curse and the un walking under the water pirates. Uh, and so I, I think that you just slightly miss the boat, <laughs> to put it that way. If, if you're master and commander coming in at this point in time. Let's dive into this appraisal of the work of Peter Weir with another great Australian. Podcaster, comedian, my friend, Alexi Toliopoulos. Gosh, where to begin with the great Peter Weir? Um, it's hard to overstate his importance to Australian cinema, really. I really do think that he was one of my first favourite filmmakers. The first filmmakers where... I felt that that kind of sense of connection you do when you stumble across art you really love and art that speaks to you. And I think it's because there's a definite like stylistic or even like emotional through line through his filmography that is unlike any other. Like you can't really even declare his films of looking the same but there's like this essence of peter weir in there like this this power and i'm fortunate enough to be working on a project at the moment where i'm getting to interview a lot of the great australian filmmakers and there has not been a single one of those filmmakers from so like a broad spectrum of australian cinema and there's not been a single one that hasn't listed peter weir as one of their favorite filmmakers not a single one and it, like i said it is a broad spectrum of australian filmmakers they all love and admire and deeply appreciate peter weir's films i think what is a really interesting kind of like motif throughout his filmography is this idea of water i mean blake you're talking about this movie uh master and commander and i mean it's the great water picture but there is this through line of all his films like containing the majesty of water. If you really look at, as a starting point, The Last Wave, which is a kind of apocalyptic supernatural film set in Australia uh, that uses a mixture of European mythology and indigenous Australian mythology and kind of capturing this this kind of cosmic power between these two cultures and how they interpret uh, a world that is beyond our understanding. It's really fascinating and water plays a huge part in it. It is so much about like this one great wave that is going to come and reset the world in a way. And he captures water with like the majesty and fear that it can instill the power of it it's ever present and if you think about like a lot of his films i i feel like that's an obsession of his i i've got a feeling i think i researched that he grew up near the beaches in sydney and i ha i, I don't know if he's ever really talked about it deeply but there is like this fascination with the water you look at truman show and has there ever been 
a movie that kind of captures this this fear of the ocean and thalassophobia and taking it and extending it and making it into like such a a character trait what stunts the character of truman and it's done in a way that captures the full artificiality of the situation the truman show situation if you will while also capturing like the reality of that fear that many people hold it's like he really deeply understands the danger of water while also the kind of like the thrill of it as well and i think that's a very australian quality we are an island country that is surrounded by water and i would say most australians do have a relationship with the water whether it be they go to the beach whether it be they go to the pool they have a backyard pool uh whether it be they have a fear of the ocean australians all have a relationship with the water it's very rare for australians to not know how to swim like that's it's part of our culture in this country is like the beach going to the water swimming and i think that it's something that feels so powerfully Peter Weir. Like, he's able to kind of capture that and instill it in his films. I think it's, like, the great quality that runs throughout a lot of his filmography. And now, you know, now that I'm thinking about this, it makes me want to go back and, like, watch even his films that are not overtly about uh, the water or a relationship with water. Now, getting back to Jeff Bridges making out with Peter Weir's head. <laughs> You know, it's like Lebowski's kissing the brain that helped make the Truman Show happen. <laughs> it's, yes, you know, that's it's it's, the, it's, it's and I never Potter. knew I had that kink, and now I know. So that's good. Yeah, <laughs> I forget to see. I can't remember if he plays Cutter or Bone in Cutter and Bone, but like it's let's let's just say Cutter, and you can edit this out if I'm wrong. Uh, it's you bone. know, Cutter, it's Bone. Yeah, exactly. Giving you know, kissing the head that gave us witness. Like it's just. Again, you know, it's it's film history. And I do think that um, I don't know how much people talk about the filmography of Peter Weir. If we lived in the world that I controlled, it would be on a daily or perhaps hourly basis. <laughs> but uh, the one of the runs of what is an amazing filmography is Fearless. Yes. And um, I think that that is definitely a, a film that has never really gotten the due. Uh, just in terms of Jeff Bridges' films, or in terms of films shot in San Francisco, or in terms of Peter Weir's filmography, that it deserves. And um, that's also a great reminder when Weir gets this thing and Jeff Bridges, you know, comes up and shows it, gives him this very affectionate uh, gesture that, um, yeah, that that's, that's a movie that bears revisiting and, and that's a relationship that they've managed to, you know, keep going through, you know, through the ages. Like the idea that, you know, a shelf in particular, like you cannot put something on it. It will always slide off. There's like, it's always going to be a little bit unsteady. And like, you might think it's going to hang for a little bit, but something will always slide off. And I think that that's like, that's the kind of underlying anxiety in, in his films. And, and whether that anxiety is kind of like fun or whether it is dreadful, I think is like part of his mechanism of, of you know, cranking up or down the tension in those things. But I always think of, um, <clears throat> again, to go back when he was first experimenting, um, with film with Picnic at Hanging Rock where he um, he was like 
I want to do a, uh, I want to do an overcranked slow motion shot, um, just a close up of a woman, of a girl, and I want her to to not blink for as long as possible. And people were like, "But you're not gonna be able to see it if it's in slow motion." She's just like, "It's just gonna <laughs> like, why are we doing an overcrank?" And then the end effect of it is so strange it is something is so wrong and you like like you think it's a static shot you think it's like at the regular frame rate for a second but then the longer that the shot holds the more you see these really small muscle movements in the face and how she's trying to stay steady and and how it's kind of like her face is almost like undulating you know creating like this earthquake effect and it's just like oh my god of course you know that's the that's the shelf hanging wrong (laughs) (laughs) you know like you can't quite get a hold uh, of it Uh, you know you can't grasp exactly what he's doing i mean gallipoli and and um the last wave together to me are such um there's such beautiful beautiful kinds of like twin filmmaking of the types of statements that they're trying to make um about war imperialism colonialism all of these things it's really beautiful but it's just again he's he's making these grand sweeping statements with these just strange fucking movies (laughs) they are are so strange my weird obsession started with his earlier films which is like you know a lot of people who loved his his early oz films it's just like their identity is just so so easily um uh they're just easily easily identifiable as weird right yes um because he hasn't been diluted by hollywood uh, yet and and that's what my early feeling was it, it doesn't mean that I wasn't like um you know wasn't obsessed with dead poet society or something <laughs> like that you know it's just that it was harder for me to find the kind of visual narrative thread between his earlier works and his more Hollywood studio pictures yes. um so I came to those films and, and kind of enjoying them as a as a through line of his life later um, and just kind of dwelled on the, the earlier pictures, you know, cause those are easier to like dissect as like an art house nerd and be like, Oh, look what he's doing here, <laughs> you know? Um, but the thing is like, I, once I allowed myself to just watch his movies and, and think about them as from the same person, I can see the DNA in them. And I can see them in like the smaller moments just because they have a bigger budget. He's, he's like, he's one of those filmmakers who is making total use of that bigger budget that he got. Yes. Never lost his, um, his style, his flair, his, his um, um, penchant for purely human stories you know, never got lost in the CGI of it um, and just kept making the types of stories that he wanted, but just with a, a bigger budget. And and so once I allowed myself to just be like, OK, fine, I'm going to watch a swashbuckling movie. Uh, I <laughs> I was, you know, taken by it. And, and a lot of it has to do with those opening scenes where he's kind of letting you know, like, hey, I haven't changed. We'll be right back after this quick break. 
The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Witness is stupendous. I mean, it's, you know, Harrison Ford on, on a trajectory where essentially, you know, as, as we've been, been able to broadly extrapolate, he comes up and he wants to be a serious actor. He's in a couple of Coplas and he's like really proves himself. And then he gets Star Wars and Star Wars is both his biggest break and the bane of his existence. <laughs> he hates being on set more than he hates life itself. And so he just like pries himself away from that to do a couple of things that are like in the vein where they make sense, but also are you know, uh, kind of thrillers in that same mm. way. And thus he mm. makes Frantic and he makes Witness with a couple of great filmmakers. I mean, you know, Polanski is whatever, pushed on an Angrata, but a good filmmaker. Um, and and then he gets to the thing where he like finally makes it to the part where he's doing exactly the roles that he wants to in or around the time when he actually comes back and works with Pakula in uh, Presumed Innocent. Yes. That is like really the start of Harrison Ford putting in exactly as much energy into the adult movies that he wants to make. I'm saying adult. I mean, four adults, not, you know, triple X. Um, and, and so, <laughs> right, you know, when, that's right. Xander Kane. Xander Kane. When Harrison Ford enters the Xander zone, oh no. Um, <laughs> but no, but that's exactly so. Like, I, I will derail love... my own podcast. Okay. No, you I'm should. Really sorry. You've got, you've got really the right sorry. to do it. Really sorry. Oh, yeah, you don't know us yet. That's just, we do podcasts to drink and do bits. That's our. That's the. That's why we go on podcasts. But Har Harrison Ford gives exactly the the right amount of energy to the Jack Ryan movies and the mm. Fugitive because he's like, all right, we're gonna make thrillers, right? That's what American movie audiences want right now. But we're gonna do them my way, which is that I'm always gonna be mad that I'm there and I'm gonna be a little hungover. 
And it's perfect. It works perfectly. Whereas in Witness, he's not there yet. He's not fully to the part where he can call the shots. And so he's still like trying and he does a really good job. That bit in the in the, uh, in the the attic when they're dancing to Sam Cooke yes. is like perfect Harrison Ford trying both to get the movie right and the part right, but also to get to a different echelon in his north. career. We've got some great ones and some old ones Ooh. coming right up. Here's one takes me back. I'm afraid to say it dates me. Maybe it dates you. Oh, oh. This is great. This, this is the best. Don't know much about the French see it a few times in Weir's career where there's actors who work with him consecutively or in a stream of films mm-hmm. with him. And, and one of them is the absolutely phenomenal Mosquito Coast, which arguably yeah. is Ford's most ambitious probably, probably Ford his, performance. Yes, probably his most impressive feat as an actor. I mean, like, yeah. you know, we can argue about best all day, but the performance he gives in Mosquito Coast is his most terrifying it's his most like work forward. It's his most visible and invisible. It's yes. you can see the degree that he is pushing for this to be somebody other than Harrison Ford giving this performance, and also you can see the terror of being trapped with that man, and yes. that that is unforced. That is not something that he's working all that hard to make sure that comes across. What a fucking performance that is! I was shown that in an environmental science class in the twelfth grade, <laughs> and I was, I was, I was pissing myself. It was so scary. I couldn't believe that I was being shown this. I was like, "Wait a minute, what is this movie that I've never heard of before by the director of Master and Commander and Witness?" and And it was just like I couldn't believe it. I could not believe just how effective and terrifying that is. The new series is on Apple TV right now, which is, uh, uh, of course, starring Justin Thoreau, who is Paul Thoreau's nephew. And it's really, really very good. Um, Rupert Wyatt did the first two episodes, and he's one of my favorites uh, of the modern working crop of directors. But like, there's just some magic in that in that in that movie. Um, that Harrison Ford performance is absolutely terrifying. It's like, it's like a silent movie performance or something. Considering how many films that Peter Weir has made that could have actually been a two-hour version of Lost, <laughs> yeah, like. Yes. Set on the same island, practically, or set with the same <laughs> sort of survivalist parameters. To think that, like, this crazy existential Jeff Bridges drama set in San Francisco is the one that, like, you would compare that series to. And yet it totally tracks. It yeah. I, I mean, I often find that, like, Peter Weir's 
filmography, like if you kind of look, if you scroll down the IMDb page, there tends to be one of two types of films. One are the sort of the the big ones that um, are still talked about, were nominated, rightfully given the accolades and the praise that they were during their time. Um, you know, your year of living dangerously, witness, Mosquito Coast to a certain degree, uh, that are, you know, still talked about and embraced. Or at least if you say the Mosquito Coast, you know, people know what you're talking about. They're like, oh, the Harrison Ford film where he wasn't playing Indiana Jones or Han Solo. <laughs> Got it. Oh, wait, the, the, the other Harrison Ford film where he's not playing Indiana yeah. Jones. Yeah, he's not, he's not hiding out amongst the Amish or chasing replicants. <laughs> I, I know the film we're talking about. Um, or there seems to be the films that um, that have a bit of a cult behind them. You know, I think The Way Back is another great example of that, too, where it's, it's like, terrific film. even though it's an epic film, it's a film completely out of its time. Yes. Like, it's the sort of film that he would have made after Gallipoli. Yeah. Um, or made during, you know, during the Australian New Wave before he came to Hollywood in a lot of ways. And, you know, he clearly wanted to make that film. He clearly had not made a film in quite a while. I think it was seven years in between movies when he made The Way Back. And it clearly is the kind of thing that he excels in um, as a filmmaker. And, and you look at, you kind of go down the list and you see that like Fearless and The Way Back are two examples of those films. And then you have Master and Commander, which seems to occupy the dead center of the Venn diagram. To me, still, I think Dead Poet Society is what I what I most think of yes. when I think of Peter Weir, because that was the first one that I saw of his. I saw it when I was a kid. I can't remember who recommended it to me, but I watched it, and that was the first Peter Weir movie I saw, and that was before I saw Truman Show, which I also I grew up, you know, I was born in the early 80s, so it's like Jim Carrey was, like, crucial to my childhood. And, and he was the right man to do it because he didn't bring any ego to this. There was no Weir ego. Even in Truman Show, even in Fearless, even in Green Card, these are movies that have to function as stories because they are telling, they're speaking directly to an American blockbuster audience who are used to the things that they're used to. And even still, he manages to make them his without ever getting in the way of them. I mean, it, it, it's truly a work of magic. It's, I think about, like, Miller making... Um, Dead Call, where he wanted to make it, and he's a doctor, and he's obsessed with that kind of idea of the story of the medical thing, but he hands it to Phil Noyce so that he can be away from it, that he, he won't make it a George Miller movie. He yes. can just sort of stand by and, and push it in there. Weir manages to be both his, the, the, the perfect auteur director and his own producer, because he manages to be like, okay, well, you've, you've, you've said this much, let's pull back so we don't say too much. I can't think of a moment in a Weir film that strikes of the director's ego getting in the way. Well, for so many reasons, uh, he, 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 one of, if not my favorite maker of all time. And I think um, one of the reasons is that there is, I think in every one of his movies, um, you know, kind of apropos to what you do, moments that are completely indelible. And in fact, sometimes visual moments that um, kind of, uh, create a circle around the entire experience of the movie and create an image that I think about Year of Living Dangerously, for example, which is a, one of my favorite movies. And the way the, um, the shot of the, the, the jetliner and uh, the crew rolling that, those uh, airplane stairs back to, yes. to get that one last guy who has to be you know driven from the country so that history can move on. But that moment of it starting to pull away and then come back is 
you know, truly amazing. And I think he's just, he is amazing at creating his moves. I mean, moments, obviously Gallipoli has one of the most, you know, stunning images that I've ever seen in a movie, which is the last shot of the movie. Yeah. Um, and I'm a really a fan, probably because of loving Weir and his movies so much. I've, I'm, I've, it's been a, a quest of my one of my favorite thing in movies is a shot or a moment or a scene that kind of metaphorically, metaphysically, spiritually encapsulates an entire film. Um, yes. And he does that so beautifully um, so many times. So so <laughs> that is one one of the many things I love about Peter Weir's movies, because um, I also love that they're all so different from one another, that he tackles every subject under the sun in a way and he does it really beautifully so i i respect and love that about his filmmaking as well it's interesting that you would say say about peter uh, being reluctant to to um, deconstruct his work because that's exactly what he's like when he's writing that um you know i would kind of um uh go off on a kind of a rant about the three x structure and the five x structure and the this and the that and you know we kind of throw off his hands in horror and say he really didn't want to know about the kind of the mechanics because in his view if you if you started investigating the mechanics of a movie um how does this plot work and then questioning that then then you kind of destroy the magic and and so his way of his way of working is much more um this is why he uses music a lot uh, um is much more about a magical weaving of moods you know and ironically you know uh you end up with a perfect three or five act structure at the end of that, um, just by trial and error. But um, it's probably why we made a good partnership because he's really into just the feel of the film, and and uh, and sort of denies uh, quite emphatically, you know, the kind of the analysis of the film because he he doesn't want to kind of in in, in his views like analyzing, you know. You, you've just got to let the dream speak to you and uh, and uh, and not try and deconstruct it because otherwise you might destroy the magic. So much of that has actually got to do with the world that Patrick O'Brien created, which was actually a gift to filmmakers because he had um, he delved into that world. He'd, 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 uh, he'd added so much weight and flesh to those characters. Um, the, the, the dialogue, you can just sort of... Uh, you know, troll through O'Brien and find this whole other way of speaking, which is uh, straight out of the mouths of the sort of uh, Napoleonic War kind of uh, heroes 200 years ago, you know. So it's, um, that was all a gift. And I think, you know, what we, what Peter and I managed to do to is, is give it, give it form and structure as a movie. And then uh, obviously all of the many incredibly talented people who, um, who then added their kind of craft uh, to it in kind of production and post-production. But, you know, it's, it's sort of, in terms of its, um, the, as you say, the affection in which it's, it's held, it's, that's sort of crept up on me. And it's, it's odd conversations with both men and women who uh, will often list it as among their favorite films. And, yeah, I don't know how to explain that, except that I, I do think that, the kind of the the underlying theme of a film is very important to its subsequent popularity and and there's something about the theme of Master and Commander 
but the possibility of um, harnessing a life of action and adventure to a life of contemplation in a meaningful way that you don't have to be one or other of these things that you can actually do both. Um, I think that's a, I think that's a message that people find sustaining, you know, it's also because the world is so complete. And again, this is a large part to do with O'Brien. Um, the world of that story is so complete. It is a film, unlike quite a lot of films, it's a film you can immerse yourself in. You can, you know, and as I said, theater is a way of doing this, of creating these enclosed worlds that feel so real you can actually go and, and live in it, you know. And that was true of the Truman Show, and it's true of, of this movie as well, that you can sort of be in that world. And even though on first viewing you don't understand all the language and you don't understand the relationship between the men, they're so authentic and so true to life um, that you sort of see it's a virtual world you can wholly inhabit. You know? And there's so many films like that. You know, you keep on coming back and enjoy being in the world and and uh, and just sort of soaking it up and learning a little bit more about that world every time you go back there. So it's certainly got that spiritual uh, sort of, uh, supernatural layer as the ship gets becalmed and the men are kind of conspiring against Holland, the poor old um, uh, ill-fated uh, lieutenant, and they become to regard him as a Jonah and go down into the dark bowels of the ship. And this ship that was a place of adventure and sunlight and uh, fresh air becomes this dark, brooding kind of presence with with men whispering below deck about the bloody kind of uh, the bloody lieutenant who's the Jonah on board and has caused, caused all their bad luck. Yeah, so that stuff is all so beautifully realized and it's um, it's only partly to do with the writing, uh, with the writing, it's to do with the performances, certainly the camera work, the direction all kind of uh, inspires uh, to create that sort of magic. Something so magical and elusive getting to the quintessence of an artist is nearly impossible. So I gave it to the best. Arguably the greatest living film critic working today, my dear friend, author, writer, the incredibly incisive Walter Hill and Samuel Coleridge scholar, Walter Chaw. Well, one of the great Coleridge poems is the, uh, the um, alien harp. The uh, alien harp is essentially an instrument that you hang in a tree and wind blows through it, you know? And, and, it, may, and it makes a, a, a sort of noise. I think you can pursue it as the simplest lute, you know, uh, you know, okay, so that, 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 he, that he hangs in there. But he also describes it, you know, I, I think he uses in that poem that as an extended poetic metaphor about the nature of the poet and the artist and the musician, especially in the world, um, who, you were just an instrument that wind blows through and you know you the more you try to control it the less musical that it is and i think um you know I, I, he says that that uh what if all of animated nature be but organic harps diversely framed that tremble into thought as over them sweeps plastic and vast one intellectual breeze at once the soul of each and god of all and i think you know, we talk about music and poets and directors who are poets and uh, all true artists. It's like they're that thing that they allow whatever it is, you know, the divinity of the world, the intelligence of the world 
um, plastic and vast to sort of blow through them. And they, and this is it. This is what comes. And so, yeah, I love that. I love the idea that he says, you know, think of Bettany as a musician. And Peter Weir is like, musician. I got it. Off mic, I know, I do occasionally have conversations that aren't recorded. I was talking to my friend Lee Zachariah about this show. He fired a series of questions at me, asked me why this show? Why Weir? Why now? That quick-fire interrogation triggered an epiphany. This film is the Acheron. Weir himself, the elusive captain. A marvel. A throwback to classicist filmmaking. Every single frame of the film is essential. Mined from the rich research and works of Patrick O'Brien and from history with Weir at the helm. It doesn't simply age better with every passing year. It blooms with every new viewing. How did this miraculous film come to pass? I'm often reminded by the host of Increment Vice and my dear friend Travis Woods that what we do at One Hit Minute Productions is to dedicate our time to such aspirationally definitive works that it all but compels the filmmakers to be part of our journey. Unlike all the President's Minutes podcast, where the dearly departed Alan J. Pakula could not be part of the show, Peter Weir had retired. He'd become a phantom, a memory. So what am I doing? From below the decks of this production, I realise that in podcaster and commander, the roles are defined. I'm the captain, taunted and haunted by a commander, Weir, who appears as if out of a fog, totally outmatched and outgunned. But with the advantage of the weather gauge, opportunism, and the requisite luck, we may have just secured the Acheron and her elusive captain as our prize. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Weir. You know, you really need to spend a lot of time with these people, uh, not just the movie length. Podcaster and Commander is produced by Blake Howard on the far side of the world. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.